Uh, just to give you a little bit of a framework for the, the sermon today, first, this is not an expository sermon. We're walking straight through a text of Scripture. I think most sermons should be that way, uh, but I think there is room in the pulpit for sermons that give more of a biblical ethic, an overarching biblical hermeneutic for certain concepts. Today we're talking about beauty and brokenness and how to approach those things. Uh, but to prepare you for that, we're going to be all over the Scriptures. Get ready. They'll be on the screen, most of them. Uh, second, I'm going to talk about the two big categories today of beauty and brokenness. Those are massive sweeping categories. They overlap in intricate, interweaving ways in everybody's life. Uh, everybody's life is very complicated and certainly more complicated than any one sermon, definitely more complicated than this sermon. But that's why we have community groups at our church is so that you can take a more broadly spoken truth from the Word of God and then apply it to your life specifically in the context of relationship. You get people around you who know you, and then you say, okay, he said this, this is what this verse says, but in my life, this is what's actually going on. This is the thing that, that calls to me. This is the thing that's broken in my life. This is how they overlap. These are the kids that I have. These are the sin-laden circumstances. Can you help me? And then you take the truth, so you have this biblical lens, I guess like this for lens, a biblical lens, and that transforms the way that you live. But if you're the type of person who only comes to church on Sunday, and this is your singular intake of the week, I just don't think it's going to help you very much. You need other people in your life that are helping massage these things in to your day-to-day -day living. I would also commend to you this book. It's called The Things of Earth by a guy named Joe Rigney. Uh, this book is a response to John Piper's wartime mentality. If you're familiar with John Piper, if you're not, forget I ever said it. Uh, but Joe Rigney writes about the things of earth in a way that's, I think, more eloquent or more helpful than anything I'm going to tell you today. So sorry if that's anticlimactic, but uh, this book is really good. As I was reading through this book over just the last few days, I thought, man, I wish I could just read this book out loud for the whole service because it's really, really good. Uh, so pick up that book and read it. I think it'll help you. The last thing is that I, I have made a habit of preaching protracted sermon series with like nine months in between sermons. Uh, so that everybody forgets the sermons before, right? And, you know, I've, I don't know, I've preached five or six times here over the course of the last five or six years. And this sermon could be a follow-up to most any sermon that I've given so far. But it's probably best, it probably best follows up a sermon that I gave five years ago. Uh, <laughs> that was called Impressive or Impressed. If you remember that sermon, good on you. If you don't, that's expected uh, of you unless you're, you know, savant. So uh, the point of that sermon was to ask the question and bring us to the crossroads of, is the primary point of my life to be impressive or to be impressed? Is the primary point of my life to get myself to a place where other people and God are impressed with me and my brand? Or is the point of my life to get my eyes up off my own navel and look around and admire the world, the people, and ultimately God to his glory. And the point of the sermon was to say with C.S. Lewis, to love and admire anything outside of yourself is to take one step away from utter spiritual ruin. Though we will not be well, he goes on to say, as so long as we admire anything as much as we love and admire God. So I believe that the primary hindrance to all of our healthy spiritual lives, to all of our followings of Jesus is self-centeredness. But once my eyes are up, once my eyes are up and I'm looking, I'm looking around at this world, that's where we sit today in this service. Once I say, God has so shown me my deficiency and his love and his mercy on top of it that my boast is in Jesus, I don't have to keep looking at myself, which we all know none of us are done with that battle. None of us are done with the battle of self-centeredness. This is somewhat abstract. I'm saying once that, once my eyes are up and I look at the world, now I begin to feel a tension. And it's the tension between beauty and brokenness. That's what we're going to talk about today. But before we do that, I'd like to pray. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we know that you are the good shepherd. You are kind to us. You have come to give us abundant life. You say, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So I pray that today with that great truth and great comfort, would you then allow us to hear your voice, O great shepherd, and then like good sheep, follow you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you want to follow along in your bulletin, I have, three, I have a bunch of blanks that you can fill in if you like that game. Or... Uh, I have three sets of double T's. I like to play around with letters and alliteration. So I have three sets of double T's. They are the troubling tension, the testamental tenor, and the 
tenable track. I'll explain those as I go. Uh, if you're distracted by the T's, don't worry about them. Um, but there's a quote from a, a French philosopher, Christian mystic, who lived in the early to mid-1900s. Her name was Simone Way. And Simone Way said, there are two things that pierce the human heart. One is beauty, the other is affliction. One is beauty, the other is affliction. And I have been wrestling with those two piercings recently, and I would like to talk about that with you for just a little while from the scriptures. I was sitting on my couch in the front room of our house. I was holding a guitar. Um, I, was holding, I was holding a guitar like this. I'm left-handed, and so I play the air guitar left-handed, but I don't have, I don't have a left-handed guitar, so I play the guitar right-handed. So I was playing like this, plucking the guitar. Every once in a while, a pleasing sound would come out of the guitar. Occasionally, I'm not a good guitar player. But I'm sitting on the couch, you know, it feels nice to rest on a couch. I'm sitting next to my wife who loves me. I'm looking out the front window. There's an oak in our front yard. The kids are outside playing with the neighborhood gang. We love the neighborhood gang. They go out and play all the time. Sure, they don't love to spend time with us anymore, but that's okay. And I'm sitting there playing, and I'm, I'm taken up into the beauty of God. Leland reminded us last week from 1 John 1 that creation, but what preceded creation was the Trinitarian fullness. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together in fullness of light. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. And that light, full of love, full of joy, full of resplendent creativity, overflowed into creation. My favorite quote about creation is that we are made out of the laughter of the Trinity. It overflowed into creation and God's beauty shone forth in a world of pleasure. So on your outline, it's, a, it's God is beautiful and his beauty has shone forth in a world full of pleasures. In a world full of pleasures. In Psalm 50, verses 1 and 2, it says this. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. That from the rising of the sun to its setting, God, as he speaks and summons the earth, shines forth. Or to put it another way, in a more pleasure-oriented way, in Psalm 16, verse 11, it says, In his presence there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, it's written from the perspective of a, a demon named Screwtape who's writing to his nephew, Wormwood, and he's talking about God in, I think, an accurate way. And he says about God... He's a hedonist at heart. And God's not exactly a hedonist in the sense that hedonists are by definition people. I think what he's saying is God is full of and overflowing with pleasure. Okay? He's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade. Are only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. He has a bourgeois mind. He, is, he has filled his world full of pleasures. He says there are things that, that we do that God doesn't mind in the least, in eating and drinking and sleeping and playing and loving. He made us to enjoy those things and to point, to trace every sunbeam back up to him, the sun. And as I was sitting there on the couch, I was thinking to myself, it's beautiful. And Jesus, because of Jesus... In his life and death for me, God has with Jesus freely given me all things. He's, he, in the, the way that God created the world and said to Adam and Eve, this is yours. You, the pinnacle of my creation, get to enjoy the whole creation. You take it in the same way, and I think in a, in a renewed way, when God sent Jesus to die for us and we understand the finished work of Christ on our behalf, Jesus says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, all this is yours. It's all yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You are a co-heir of this earth and all of its pleasures. So when God said in Genesis 1:31, after he made Adam and Eve and everything preceding them, he said, it's very good. I just, I felt it. I felt that it's very good. There's, there's a musical, musical artist named Colin Hay. I don't know if you guys ever heard of Colin Hay. Uh, he was the lead singer of Men at Work in the 80s. Maybe you heard the Land Down Under, that song. You with me? Um, not his best work, in my opinion. His, his solo career has far transcended the, the early men at work days, but he has a song that's called A Beautiful World that I was reminded of, I think sitting on the couch that day, and I pulled it up, and it goes like this. He says, my, 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 it's a beautiful world. I like swimming in the sea. I like to go out beyond the white breakers where a man can still be free, 
or a woman if you are one. That's actually what it says in the song. It goes, or a woman if you are one. Uh, I like swimming in the sea. My, 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 it's a beautiful world. I like drinking Irish tea with a little bit of Lapsang Souchong, which is some sort of tea extract or something like that. I like making my own tea. And I, I thought about the lyrics of his song, and I thought, amen, Colin. <laughs> my, 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 it's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world here in the, the num- MSN's number one city, traveling leisure-wise in the world, according to MSN Travel and Leisure 2017 in Charleston. My, 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 it's a beautiful world. I grew up on the Isle of Palms. I love to swim out beyond the white breakers where a man can still be free or a woman if you are one. I love, specifically, I like English tea. I like Earl Grey tea. I drank it this morning. I, I drink it British style. I put sugar in it. I put milk in it. And I delight in it. Okay? I love those things. And, and so I was just taken up into how wondrous our God is, the, the Trinitarian fullness that has overflowed into creation. I was just drinking it in and saying, thank you, Lord. And for the you know, last week or two, I've just been thinking about all these little pleasures in this world that point us to God. We, I've, we've been watching Blue Planet 2 with my kids. Uh, I don't know if you know Blue Planet. It's, it's like a spinoff of Planet Earth. It's narrated by David Attenborough, who has like the most soothing old British voice. <laughs> and he's talking about and, you know, amazing cinematography. These people, these photographers and videographers must be sitting in the same place for months at a time to capture some of this footage. But it's just the, the vastness of the ocean, the ingenuity of a killer whale to somehow knock a, a fish with its tail to stun it like in a big school of fish and then eat the fish because they're stunned. Or this other fish who would take a little, like a clam in his mouth and slam it up against a rock for like 50 times. Just keep doing it until it broke. And the perseverance and the ingenuity and just the, the whole resplendence of creation, as I watch it, I think, my, 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 it's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world. And then I'd lay in my bed. Our heater hasn't been working real well, so I, I'd feel the warmth of the blanket. I like it cold when I sleep. The warmth of the blanket and the coolness of the pillow, one of the best combos. It just, it, it, it felt so good to me. Extra cool pillow because our heater hasn't been working very well. And I was at, on the Wando River the other night. I was just looking across the marsh. I love the wetlands. I was looking at the sunset, thinking, God is an artist. He's wonderful. And he handed it to me. He handed this whole thing to me. I was tasting foods. I'm not a foodie guy, okay? I like, I'm a Wendy's Taco Bell guy. Um, I love Taco Bell. And I know some people, <laughs> it's probably the wrong crowd to say that to, but uh, one of the things that I have been so thrilled about in, in Mount Pleasant, which... One of my the sadnesses is that we're too high society in Mount Pleasant to have a Chinese buffet. Um, but, but we do have still Taco Bell on Coleman Boulevard that's been there since I was a kid. We have a Taco Bell, I think, up where the Blockbuster video used to be. And they're, they're built another one. I'm like, somehow Taco Bell perseveres through Mount Pleasant's aristocracy. And so, the, but the point is not Taco Bell. Uh, the point is that last week was restaurant week and we had some friends in town that were doing an assessment for our campus outreach staff team and they offered for us, even though they were coming to serve us, they offered to take us to dinner. And they took us to Tavern and Table on Shim Creek. And that tasted good. Uh, I, they brought out this cast iron skillet of, of cornbread, like sweet cornbread, I mean, and uh, they had a little, like a, well not a little, a huge pat of butter on the top. You just spread all around that thing. And you put that, that in your mouth, and it's like slap your mama good, like real, real good. Uh, not that any, any mothers in here should be slapped, just that uh, it tastes real good. I, it was one of those moments you say, Lord, you didn't have to give me taste buds. This could have been purely functional, but you are beautiful. And you want me to taste the goodness of you And then there are people, the pinnacle of creation, right? Like you are beautiful, like people and the interactions between people are such a picture of the Trinity as we talked about last week. And and I just look, I was sitting on the couch playing guitar and I looked outside and there was this person, okay? This person. (laughs) I I, I knew this was gonna happen again. Uh, That's my daughter. Her name's Zoe, she's two years old, and she is beautiful. She's just beautiful. And the idea that I would see 
in her smiles, in her, she jumps on her little trampoline like really high. <laughs> uh, it's an amazing vertical for a two-year-old. And, uh, <laughs> and when she, you know, she stall in her bedroom every night, I'll sing her a one song, but she wants to stall, so she'll keep it coming. She, I'll be like, I'll sing, all right, I love you, so I was glad I'm your daddy, good night. She'll go, sing the ABCD. And so I'll sing the ABCD. And I get to the end, but she's already plotting the next song. Because I'm telling her, this is the last song. She goes, okay. But somewhere in the middle, she goes, not the last song, like that. And then she'll say, sing to Jesus Love Little Children. And then we'll sing Jesus Loves Little Children, and we keep going. But when I look, when we were singing about the love that's lighting God's eyes, it's like how I feel when I look at Zoe is it's just tracing that sunbeam back up to the sun. She's amazing. Uh, it says in Psalm 19 that day-to-day pours forth speech that God in his creation shows us how he loves us. It says that the sun rises like a bridegroom bursting forth from his chamber in his joy because he loves the bride. And I'm taken into the gospel which says that Jesus is the bridegroom and we're the bride. And so when, he's, when the sun comes up, he says, look how I love you. Look how gorgeous I am. And I feel, I, I can't even handle it. I, I just want to be enveloped in the beauty of God. I saw a scene, just a scene from a movie, Best Picture 1999, American Beauty. Uh, I saw it a long time ago. I don't know that I would endorse it. It's got some less appropriate things in it. It was the best picture because it's an outstanding movie, but there's a scene where a guy who's filming just, a, I think, at the wind in a paper bag says, sometimes the beauty is just so overwhelming, I can't handle it. It reminds me of a benevolent force behind the universe. So I'm feeling all that on the couch, and there's this other thing that creeps in. Remember two things pierced the human heart. One is beauty, and my heart was pierced with beauty and continues to be. But the other was the fact that the world is horribly, horribly broken. Horribly broken. Creation, like the whole story didn't just stop at Genesis 1.31, right? When it was very good. You read Genesis 3 and the fall and the curse. You read Uh, Genesis 6, and every intention of man was only evil continually, and God sends a flood on the earth, and you see all of these things moving forward. The world is horribly broken. I was driving in my van with Annie. This was in Minnesota when Annie was about four or five years old, about, you know, five years ago. And I was having one of those philosophical conversations with Annie that's way over her head, but somehow I think she's going to understand it. And I said, you know, Annie, the world is broken. (laughs) And she goes, you keep saying that. I don't see any cracks. That's what she said, just like that. I'm like, I forgot how literal you are. Uh, But metaphorically speaking, I was thinking to myself, the cracks are everywhere. They're everywhere. There is such hostility in the world. Last week, uh, Monday, was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and we celebrated the life and legacy of Martin Luther King, who fought for God's justice in the face of violence through nonviolent, loving ways. And I think his legacy is very much worth fighting. And that day, we wanted to educate our children on a story from the civil rights movement. And so we learned the story of this young lady right here, Ruby Bridges, okay? Uh, I'll cry again. Ruby, Ruby was a, she was born in 1954. And in 1960, she was six years old. And the federal government had mandated integration of schools. But the Louisiana state government and city governments weren't really putting up with that. And so Ruby's parents went to the courts. They got a court order, and they said, no, at William France Elementary School in New Orleans, we're gonna, you're going to walk into those doors, Ruby, and you're going to integrate the school because this is where we are in, in the United States now. So Ruby's parents were brave. Ruby was braver because she's the one going to the school. And she walks down the walkway to the school, and it is lined with raging people. We, we, we watched a, a Disney remake of, of, of Ruby's story, and it's lined with people. She walks hand in hand with her mom. She's got bodyguards, and they're spitting vitriol. They're spitting hatred at her, slurs that you would not begin to think of saying. She walks into the school and eventually meets her teacher, Miss Henry. Every parent pulled every kid out of that school. Ruby went to school by herself because they couldn't handle it, the hostility in their hearts toward Ruby and her kind. And so every day they would line the streets and scream hatred at Ruby. And every day she would go into her class and just one-on-one with Miss Henry for like nine months, learn her stuff. Now, there's beauty in this brokenness. And I'm just, this is, doesn't have to do necessarily with the point of the sermon, except it's just amazing. Ruby walked in calmly every day, okay? And 
Miss Henry was intrigued by the six-year-old girl. Like, how can a six-year-old girl be this mature? When's she going to break? When's she going to break and, and lash back at the people that are spitting hate at her in this broken world? And one day, she finally walked up to the steps and was about to walk in the school. Miss Henry's watching her from out the window. And Ruby turns back toward the crowd, and Miss Henry can only see her through the window, and she's mouthing. She, her mouth is moving, seems to be saying something to the crowd. So she comes into the, stool, the, the room, and Miss Henry said, Ruby, you finally couldn't take it anymore? You broke? Dude, what'd you say to them out there? She yell at them? And she said, what are you talking about? I wasn't talking to them. And she said, no, I saw your mouth move. She says, yeah, um, I pray for them every day, and I forgot to pray for them as I walked today. My parents have taught me to pray for them. And so I turned to pray. I turned to say, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I thought, oh, uh, Ruby, that is, that is some kind of beauty and brokenness. But ultimately, the hostility was overwhelming. And, and I'm not saying, I mean, this is 60 years later, but hostility hasn't left the human heart, right? In any of these ways, whether across ethnic lines or toward any, any person, the idea of elevating yourself above somebody, the idea of feeling, I don't know, check on your road rage, you know, they, Hostility hasn't left our hearts. And with that, there's rampant hunger in the world and water that's not clean and disease. Every week, I get prayer requests from, we all do, the, the, the staff does prayer requests from Carl uh, Schooling, who's, who gives, a, just a, it's usually a long list of prayer requests from our church, and many of them, most of them, have to do with disease, cancer, broken limbs, aging, we have to remember together that aging was not supposed to happen, right? Like aging is part of the curse. We had, a, we had three funerals on our property last weekend. One of them was for a guy named Dick Smith. Dick died, he was 97 years old. He was almost 98 when he died. He came to faith when he was 70 years old. And you know, I think it was a celebration because he loved Jesus, but I don't know how often we think to ourselves, he wasn't supposed to age. That wasn't supposed to happen. This is all broken. There's not supposed to be this arc from kind of fetus where you're, you're, you're kind of helpless all the way back to this place where you're helpless again in your mind and in your body. Not supposed to happen. But death is just part of this. I was just thinking about the people who die. And this week we had a young man die who grew up in our church. He was from Russia. He was adopted by a family here that loved him. He was living with another family that loved him in his 20s. He got hit by a car and died like a few days ago. Broken. And on top of all of that, vastly above in terms of magnitude, all of that is hell. That people, millions, b billions of people are dying and going to hell. Like forever. Forever. I, I can't yell it loud enough for you to feel that, for me to feel that. Forever. So we come back to me on the guitar on the couch. I'm thinking all these things, you know. There's an intense moment on the couch. And I zoom back in, and I, as I'm playing, I'm thinking, oh, this is beautiful. But right now there are millions, sorry, there are millions of people who just need a bowl of rice I zoom all the way into my neighborhood and I think about our neighbors who right now are going through a divorce and their seven-year-old plays with my, or six-year-old plays with my five-year-old. I'm like, what's going on in his heart and how's this going to traumatize him? It, it's just hard. And some people in our congregation are going through divorce. It's hard. It's so broken. And they don't know Jesus for all I know. And so I had a couple thoughts at that point. One, I want my emotional posture to always carry both of those things. I must intensely feel both of those things. I must be aware of both of those things and then feel both of those things. I must feel, on the one hand, gratitude for the gospel and all that God has given me with Jesus. As I look at these things, I must trace these sunbeams back up to the sun. If I just look at something and say it's beautiful or don't notice it, I'm an idolater. Not like... I'm not saying like every single moment of your consciousness. I'm saying if that's not the pattern of your life, okay? And then over here, we have, you have gratitude here, you have groaning here. And if I'm not groaning, if I'm not seeing 
the brokenness of the world. I'm not walking in line with the heart of God. I don't understand this present age. And so you've got both of these things held in tension. Wondrous beauty that I want to be caught up in and my heart's being tugged by the brokenness. And I'm like, what do I do with this? Which is the second piece is what about my life trajectory? How do I posture my life and action toward these things? So here's the testamental tenor. Okay, what I mean by that is what's the, what's the flavor of the New Testament? How does Jesus show us how we should posture our life and action toward these things? And uh, what I'd say is when you read the Old Testament, you get a feel for the post-fall people of Israel. After the curse, God gives the people a law and says it's a, it's a multifaceted law, certainly a civil or civic law that says if you do these things, you will live. If you learn how to treat one another, you can become once again a healthy picture of me and, and be my people and I will be your God as you it will go well with you as you seek the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. As you build my tabernacle, you build the temple, you build the city of God. And there are calls as well to care for the broken, to care for the afflicted. Uh, but the feel is more, I would, I would argue, with whispers moving forward of build up this city of peace and beauty and joy. Seek the land flowing with milk and honey. God's aim was always greater than that, but I think either by proper or improper interpretation of God's revelation, that's where his people got. But Jesus changed the script. Or to say it more clearly, more accurately, he revealed the script. And these are the things that he introduced, or he did. One, he introduced the concept of eternity. He introduced the concept of eternity. I think there are whispers of eternity in the Old Testament, like Sheol and, and different moments of saying, you know, uh, at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore, for example. But not necessarily a clear theology of heaven and hell. But when Jesus came onto the scene, he introduced the concept of eternity, saying things like, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, but where moth and rust destroy, and thief can break in and steal, but rather store up for yourself treasures in heaven. To use the language of Hebrews 10, he told his people that you have a better possession and a lasting one. This life is not your possession. He introduced the concept of eternity. And not only did he introduce heaven, he also introduced hell and said there's a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. And so what he brought was a certain detachment from this earth where you realize, okay, this isn't quite home. The transience on this earth, I don't think people quite understood until Jesus came onto the scene, but he says, this isn't your home. Now, some people interpreted that to mean that for the rest of our lives, because this is not our home and we are to take up our crosses, we'll look at that in a minute. What I need to do, <coughs> excuse me, is become an ascetic. An ascetic means I'm going to treat myself with severity to the body. I'm going to deny myself any pleasure. And that's why I'm going to follow Jesus. But we know biblically, when you're talking about beauty and pleasure over here and brokenness over here, that the, the experience of beauty and pleasure is not to be an ascetic one where you just deny yourself all pleasure at any time because 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 this is 1 to 5 actually not 4 and 5 it says now the spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons to the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared and so these teachings of demons these insincere liars this is what they teach they forbid marriage and they require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So if you can receive all these things that God made with thanksgiving, that's good. Paul says that. However, the same Paul, following the teachings of Jesus and all that Jesus revealed in his life and death and resurrection, said this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 to 31. He said, this is what I mean, brothers. He's talking about singleness and marriage here and what state you should be in. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So the same Paul who says in 1 Timothy 4, Never forbid marriage. The same Paul who says in Ephesians 5, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Nourish and cherish her like your own body. Also says, let those who live in this world with wives live as though they had none. And what he's saying there is not, you know, be reserved and distant from your wife. 
what he's saying is this life has a proper place. This life is brief. He's setting this life in its place and therefore building a healthy amount of detachment from this earth. And that concept of eternity saying, this isn't really home. That's home. That was introduced by Jesus. We'll move faster through these. B, he demonstrated the life his followers would live. This passage, Matthew 9, 35 to 38, is kind of home base for the campus outreach ministry with which I work. Uh, Jesus is demonstrating in his public ministry the life which his followers should live. And it says this, <laughs> Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so first, Jesus decides, he's got three and a half years of public ministry. And in that public ministry, not only is he going to set his face toward Jerusalem to die for the sins of his people, that's the main point of his life, he's also going to demonstrate the life that his followers are to leave when he's gone. And what he does is he goes throughout the cities and villages he teaches in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near and, and gradually demonstrating more of what the actual gospel of himself was as he went more and more public as he headed toward the cross. And he healed every disease and every affliction and then looked at the crowds. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And we could think, oh, Jesus was amazing. That's not really what we're called to do, but Jesus is amazing. He's compassionate, and this is his call. But immediately he turns to his disciples, and he says, I'm looking at this crowd. I see them harassed. I see them helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So what you guys need to do is understand that the laborers are few. And we need to send out laborers into this plentiful harvest. Pray for these laborers, and then in 19 chapters, I'm going to say to you, you go and be the laborers. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. I'm with you to the end of the age. Now get out of here. And that's what he says. So Jesus demonstrated the life his followers would live as he built this tenor of the New Testament. See, he inaugurated a new season of waiting. So you take those two things together just to summarize this. What Jesus said to them was that the feel of your life, the feel of the New Testament, the feel of Jesus' life, the feel of the life of the apostles, the feel of the early church was that the seeing and enjoying of beauty and pleasure is no longer our primary pursuit. I'll say that again. The seeing and enjoying of beauty and pleasure is no longer our primary pursuit. Not that those things aren't wonderful and not that we're not made for them to live in them with Christ forever, unfading, undefiled, imperishable, kept in heaven for us, but that is no longer our primary pursuit. D, he showed us how to know him. You could say to taste true beauty, to know him. In Luke 9, this is the passage that we don't ever really want to read. It says, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And he had just finished predicting how he would suffer and die at the hands of men. So he's saying, you, what it means to take up your cross is to die. I just described it. In this case, he's actually describing it at least partially physically. Like you're going to die. He's talking to his disciples. Eleven of them, ten of them died at the hands of persecutors. So he's saying, what it means to follow me is to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily, and to follow me. And in saying that, you see where these ascetic traditions came from, right? You understand that these didn't come out of nowhere. You understand that when he said deny yourself, they thought, oh, we must deny ourselves all pleasures. And at least what Jesus is saying is this isn't your home yet. To deny yourself at least means turn your face toward the harassed and helpless. Step into brokenness instead of building an, an insulated nest of pleasure, which is just so good. It's so good. But we can know him in this. And one of the ways we can know him in this is that when we decide, I'm going to look at the crowds, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They don't have God the shepherd. They're hopeless and without God in the world. They're broken in all sorts of ways, physical and eternal ways, ultimately eternal ways. You look there and then you say, I'm going in. 
I'm going to give myself, I'm going to aim my life there. What you start to feel in knowing, in what I mean by knowing Jesus is you start to feel that he fights till I'm found. He leaves the 99 because you realize in their brokenness, this is what Jesus did for you. He pursued you in your heart, in your brokenness, which is, was and is substantial. And you start to feel, oh, it, it, I can see a live oak tree and be that one right out there. It's unbelievable. I look at it like every time I come into the office and think, wow, God is amazing and beautiful. I can't believe he calls me that. But when I step into someone's life and their brokenness and I, through the Spirit, keep fighting for them, it's just the, the closest picture to true beauty that I can get because that's who he is for me. He showed us how to know him. So all that to say there is a tenor in the New Testament. The, the feel of the New Testament, the, the, the central symbol of the New Testament is a cross, not a person sniffing a flower. Okay? It's a cross, a dying, bloody, persecuted, loving, you know, sorrow and love flow mingled down cross. Not, even though this is wondrous, someone enjoying a meal. Okay? Not, it's not a, a, a Thomas Kincaid painting. Right? Just some beautiful landscape, as beautiful as those things are. And I want to know what that testamental tenor is because I want to know Jesus. I want to walk in line with him. So he changed and revealed the script. So there's beauty on one side. There's pleasure, uh, beauty and pleasure on the one side. There's brokenness on the other. And the question is not, and I want you guys to hear this as I affirm the enjoyment of God through beauty. The question is not whether or not you will enjoy God through his beauty, whether or not you will see the sunbeams from God and trace them back to the sun. The question is, which way do you aim your life? Okay? Which way do you aim your life? You can either say, I'm going to aim my life at more of the experience of the beauty and pleasure of this world. And if someone comes along that I can feel compassion for and they, you know, they brush up against me and they get some benefit, great. Or... And I think this is the biblical tenor. You pluck up your life. You turn it toward those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd because this is a really short life and this is what we're going to do with it. You aim your life at them. You figure out a vision to do that in their lives, however this is going to happen. And I'm telling you, none of us are great at that. Okay? I'm a professional Christian. I'm not great at that. And my job is to be a Christian. But you, you pluck it up and you aim at their pain and you will have beauty thrown in. That is who God is. Okay, you're going to have that thrown in, but if your lifestyle is aimed, and this is, you know, Buster used that Epicurean term a bunch of times over, uh, so we would get it in Ecclesiastes, that's what that means. means. I'm just going to seek a lifestyle of pleasure on some level, and that's going to be the main aim of my life. But i got these harassed and helpless people over here, and I don't know what to do with them. I'm saying to you that Jesus is saying to you that if it's a whole lifestyle, then you pluck up your whole lifestyle. So that you can know him. I'm begging him to do that in me, however it looks. So I can turn this way and aim at the harassed and helpless. The, the question that I'm asking is, are you willing to abandon the draw, the allure of life and beauty to step into the presence of death for a little while? That these people over here might know and feel the beauty of God and your joy may be made complete. So... The last, well, this isn't the last question, but the question is, why don't we live like this? Why don't we live like this? Why aren't we willing to step into death? And let me be clear, many in our church do. Many people in our church do. The, the Craig and Rafia Harris's of the world. The John and Lori Pittners of the world. The, the Mac and Jenny Smiths of the world. Those are just a few. If, if you weren't on the list, it doesn't mean you're not on the list. It just means uh, those are the few that I thought of, okay? Um, those people have said, I think... I'm going to aim my life this way. They still enjoy stuff. And, and they need to be challenged again. Like, I need to be challenged again. Craig Harris, the most teachable man in the world, would gladly be challenged again. Love me some Craig. Uh, but uh, the question is, why don't we live like this? A few answers. One, beauty is too beautiful. Beauty is too beautiful. You just taste that beauty. You taste the warm touch of someone in your family or a significant other, uh, or you, you see the Canadian Rockies, or you have like-minded friendship inside the church walls, and you think, this is just too good. This is heavenly. This is what I'm made for. It's addictive. I can't stop being here. Okay? 
And we all know how hard that is because we are made for it. Right? We are made for it. It's like, I got to see those Canadian Rockies as often as I can. In fact, I'll plan 30 years of my life to see Canadian Rockies if that's what I got to do. And Jesus has introduced the concept of eternity just to help pluck us up from that. To aim our faces at the harassed and helpless. The second answer to why we don't live like this is that we don't really believe it. We just don't believe it. I don't know how to put it any more plainly than that, but I think it's true of me when I'm not walking this way. Um, I was talking with somebody the other day, and I said, I think this is true. We don't really believe it. And he said, well, I think we believe it. We just don't necessarily live like it. And I said, aren't those things synonymous? The same thing, right? Do you believe this? Do you believe that people are in pain, first of all? Do you believe that people are harassed and helpless? Because I walk around the Harris Teeter in Mount Pleasant, and uh, people look pretty, and, and, you know, some good sales, and, and uh, I just, I, I can be, be kind of lulled into a sense of overconfidence. They look fine. I think they have enough money, and they, they smiled at me. You know, we live in a nice culture, and I forget harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And this is its own sermon, but some of the reason I forget that is that I forget that my heart is broken. I forget all of my junk in my heart and all of the rebellion toward God in my heart and all of my self-centeredness, and so I don't translate it into other people. That's its own sermon, but that's important. We don't believe people are in pain. We don't, uh, we don't believe that we will live forever in heaven. It's real. I have to tell myself that multiple times a day. It's real. I will live forever in heaven because Jesus has given me eternal life. I will live forever in heaven. It's so basic to Christianity, but, you know, that's the fight. There's a kid in my group some years ago who in a candid moment, he was in, he was in a discipleship group that I was leading in, in the University of Minnesota, and he said, very honestly, and I really appreciate it, he said, look, I always keep one toe in the pleasures and beauty of this world just in case this whole thing is a hoax. And I remember thanking him for saying that and thinking, wow, that's it's such a, a clear demonstration of how we tend to struggle, right? To not really be plucked up from this world, let those who live in this world, do, have dealings with this world, rejoice in this world, do them as if they're not doing them. But I think the at the, the bottom of the thing that we don't really believe, even more than believing that we live forever in heaven, we don't believe that hell is real. We just don't. We don't believe that hell is real. There was a, a British criminal named Charles Peace who had lived his life in murder and theft, and he was about to be executed, and the priest was sitting there trying to preach the gospel to him and telling him about the, the fear of hell, and Charles Peace blurted out. He said, sir, if I believe what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees that I, and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. Talk about convicting. Charles Peace, a non-believer. We don't believe that hell is real. And finally, we forget our rescue. We forget our rescue. We forget how we have been rescued. I'm going to read this to you. It'll take a couple minutes, but I think you need to hear it. I think I need to hear it again. It's a story from William Booth. It's called A Vision of the Lost. We've been reading it. It was an excerpt from the Vine Project that the pastors have been working through. It says, I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it, the black clouds hung heavily. Through them every now and then vivid winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam, tower and break again. In that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock, I saw a vast platform. I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. And he says, as I looked on, 
First, he sees that some of them are helping other people be rescued. But then he says, I saw that the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets or classes, and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments. But only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get the people out of the sea. But what puzzled me most was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have a care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who are struggling and drowning right before their very eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. I read that the first time, and I thought about only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get the people out of the sea, having forgotten all about their rescue. I thought about how we and I don't remember the lapping water over my mouth and nose of anxiety and fear and hopelessness and Phariseeism and pain and the fear of hell. And I thought, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. We do not walk away from that the same. You cannot walk away from that the same. God who loves you and wants life for you will not have you walk away the same when you hear about those who are struggling in the sea. You were rescued. I was rescued. Enslaved to various passions and pleasures, hated by others and hating one another, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us, not because of works that we did in righteousness, but because of his mercy. Just got to feel that. This is where we end. A tenable track. Now, I can't give specific, quantifiable, practical application because everybody's life is different, like I said before. But I just to ask a couple of questions. One is, how much beauty or pleasure can or should we seek? I just want to back up and say, I'm not saying in this sermon that to deny yourself is to go to a restaurant and go to tavern and table and decide to eat like a bad food. Right? Like enjoy God in his goodness. Taste him in his goodness. I hate mayonnaise. I'm not just going to order a mayonnaise sandwich because I'm like, Jesus wants me to remember eternity. Like I, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I would say in light of where we aim our lives, the, the answer that I think God was bringing to me as a biblical feel, how much beauty, a sabbatical principle, how much beauty or pleasure should we seek? The answer is enough to remember that he's good and that heaven is coming. Enough to remember that he's good and heaven is coming. But taste and see afresh that he's good. Because when you step into the world of brokenness, you step into all this pain, potential persecution, guaranteed according to Jesus and Paul. You step into that world and it might be in your own family. You got to come up for air, like a whale. You come up for air and you, you, you breathe for a second. You say, oh man, you're, wonder, you're wonderful, before you dive back down into the depths. Enough to fuel yourself to keep pouring out, because that's what this life is for. Secondly, how much life can we really pour out? How much life can we really pour out? Uh, again, can't really qualify this. You got people in the church with young children. You got job demands. You got all sorts of restraints in your life. I don't know how much life you can actually pour out to the harass and help us. I'll tell you a couple things. One, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, Paul says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, if he, wasn't, he didn't rise from the dead, people are going to pity us. The reason he says that is not just because they believed wrong. The reason he said that is because they went from town to town getting the snot beat out of them for the sake of the gospel. Because they sold out their lives. They took up their cross daily to follow him. And so the question I would ask you is, if, if people look at your life where they say, you are to be pitied in any way, and if the answer is no, run to the cross, say, Jesus, I, I'm sorry, would you cover me by your blood? He say, yes, I will. I love you. You're in my hands. It's okay. Okay, we're going to move on this together. I want you to know me and love me. But are you to be pitied? And then from there, just the, this is the, the only practical thing I'll tell you, is I believe that all of life is a medium for relationship. And that your life, no matter what job you do, what family you're in, you know, what, what fitness classes you go to, okay, 
There are relationships there for you to have. And those people around you are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Those people have pain now and hopelessness and the promise of hell coming without Jesus. So when you're sitting in your fitness class, fitness class, this is a fitness savvy town, right? So if you're in your fitness class, Crunch Fitness, $20 a month, boom. You can do fitness classes. And when you're in there, you can either be doing your power knees, you know, right here. And when you're doing your, I love the power knee, you can think, oh, God is wonderful. He gave me a body. I can't believe that he allows me to participate in that. You can do that and think, Laura is next to me and Karen and Jim and all three of them doing their power knees. And while they're doing their power knees, you say, not just, oh, I love a good power knee and this is my life and this is what I do. You think, how is Laura's soul, how is Karen's soul? And I'm telling you, that's an intense thought to think, but that's the biblical call. How is Jim's soul? How do I aim my life at Laura and Karen and Jim? How do I plan? How do I build a vision in my family? How do I sit down before the Lord? If you're in a family, if it's just you with a group, a community around you, say, what's our vision to give ourselves to the harassed and helpless? How are we going to orient our lives this way? And you ask why? Okay, why do I live in the neighborhood I do? What do I do with my house? What do I, how do I think about the relationships all around me? And then you go, hey, Laura, you want to get coffee after this? And then you get to enjoy the taste of coffee. You get to enjoy the smell of, I don't like the taste of coffee, but the smell of coffee. You sit at a Starbucks or wherever you are. You, enjoy, you trace those sunbeams back to the sun while your aim of your life is Laura and her eternity. Okay? So we're done. I'm going to close with this uh, quote. It's from a song called Jesus I My Cross Have Taken. I like the indelible grace version personally. It says, perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition? God and heaven are still my own. Know that the beauty is already yours. God and heaven are still your own right now. You can taste it and trace it, but don't just taste it and trace it back to God and say you're thankful. Trace it to the eternity that is yours that you might be rightly plucked up from this world to give yourself to the harassed and helpless. I would commend to you the discussion questions. They're in your bulletin. Let's pray. Lord, I know that all of these things are heavy. Uh, I know that it is a tension indeed. I pray that none of us would walk away totally forgetful. None of us would walk away forgetting about those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That compassion would overflow from our hearts as we are filled up with all that you are for us. In Christ, I pray that the pictures of your beauty that we see in the world would only fuel us to enjoy your grace, to enjoy the hope of heaven, and go in this brief little life. Uh, help us to rest in your grace. If there are people struggling in here with guilt and shame over these things, I pray that they would rest in your gospel and then run to you, to know you as you point them in the way, as, as I prayed at the beginning, that, that we would know and follow your voice, O oh, great shepherd. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.